following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you are here with us this morning. Glad those of you have joined us online. And I see you guys up there in the balcony. Glad you're here. If you've got your Bible with you, grab it. And let's go to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in Mark 1 this morning. If you're new to the Bible, the Old Testament is really the story of everything that, that comes before the time of Jesus. And then our New Testament begins with four kind of biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And many scholars believe that Mark is the very first of those Gospels that was written. And so we're going to talk about the beginning of that story uh, this morning. But, you know, I think um, one of the things that I do as a pastor is I spend a lot of time with words, right? I think a lot about words. You guys know I love etymology of words uh, because a big part of what I do is just trying to find just the right word to convey an idea, just the right word to, to, to sink into your hearts and into your minds. But I was thinking about a word this week that's sort of a miserable word. The word unresolved. Don't you just hate when things are unresolved? You hate living through those experiences, a story that's not yet finished. Maybe some of you are living through something that's unresolved right now. Um, An unresolved conflict. An unresolved situation in, in your work life or your family life or your financial life. Something that's just, it's just... Not finished. It's unresolved. It's sort of a miserable place to be. I was thinking about that word because of the story we've been telling. We've been telling the story of God by, by telling the story of the Old Testament, telling Israel's story. But the thing is, is when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you get to the end of Israel's story, and the story is unresolved. The story of the Old Testament ends with an ellipsis, in a sense. It's a story in search of an ending. I mean, it would be like having a new hope and the Empire Strikes Back without having Return of the Jedi, right? It'd be like having Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers, but but not having the Return of the King. Having having all six of the Harry Potter books, but not having Deathly Hallows, right? If those stories aren't sort of your speed, it would be like having the first Fast and the Furious movie without the other ten, right? (laughs) No, it actually wouldn't be like that at all. Um, But you get the idea, right? It's a story that needs an ending. Uh, My buddy Sam, who's an Old Testament scholar, would also say, for those of us who read the New Testament, without reading the story of Israel, it would be like reading the Deathly Hallows without everything that came before it. You could do that, and you might enjoy it. You might get something out of it, but you'd be missing so much of what's really going on. And so we've been trying to tell the story of God, but it's a story that's in search of a climax. I introduced you to the very first week of the series, a, a, an image that you may have uh, come across sometime in your uh, high school career of uh, a story arc. That every great story begins with an exposition, the, the introduction, the, the setting, the main characters. And then there's an inciting incident, a, a, a conflict that enters into the story, And from there, you have the rising action, the unfolding of the consequences of that conflict until you reach the climax. That is what happens in the story to definitively respond to the conflict. From there, you get the falling action, the the unfolding of the consequences of the climax until you ultimately reach the denouement, the resolution, the happily ever after, if it's a story like that. 
And we've been telling this story beginning with the beginning, with creation in Genesis chapter one and two, the beginning of the story, introducing this as the story of God and the story of us. But we talked about the conflict that enters the story in Genesis three, the the fall into sin, the vandalism of Shalom. And now this good world that God has made that, that rightfully belongs to him has become the dominion of sin and death. Ever since sin enters the story, it dominates God's good world. And each and every one of us are born into the dominion of sin and death. And then from there, we talked about God's dream to set the world right. And God calls Abraham, the the election of Abraham and Israel, to be the means through which he would he would pursue his rescue mission in the world. God works in history, through history, by calling a man and his family and his descendants to be the means through which his rescue mission moves forward. But then it looks like the rescue mission is off track because God's chosen people find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And so we have the Exodus, God's deliverance of his people, delivering them out of slavery and into identity and proximity calling them to be a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the, the, the culmination of that Exodus story is the presence of God, that they are up close and personal with the personal presence of God himself. But then we reach the point in the story where Israel is taken away into exile. That's what we talked about last week, that Israel, who is supposed to be part of the solution, shows themselves to continue to be part of the problem. They are perpetuating the dominion of sin and death in the world. And as a consequence, they're taken into exile. But it's there that that they have a kind of rebirth. That it's there that they begin to dream of a better future. They begin to dream of a day when Yahweh would return to his people and set things right. The most tragic scene perhaps in all the Old Testament story is the scene where the presence of God leaves the temple as part of that experience of Israel in exile. That personal presence of God has left the temple and and they're waiting and they're longing and they're hoping that maybe one day that God would return to his people and set the world right. And that's where the Old Testament story ends. And so we pick up the gospel of Mark. Now, if you're doing the reading plan, where we're reading a chapter of the day of the New Testament every weekday, we're covering from Matthew to Revelation all of the course of this year. On Thursday of this week, we just got to the gospel of Mark. So if you haven't been reading with us, it's the perfect opportunity. Read two chapters of Mark uh, this evening and then jump in tomorrow morning and start reading with us, okay? So we covered Mark chapter one on Thursday. And if you're part of the daily community, I talked about this passage on Thursday, but, but I felt like we only began to skim the surface. And there's so much depth here because what Mark is offering is the climax of the story of God. So look with me, Mark chapter one, beginning in verse one. Mark writes, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Now, pause right there. Before you go any further, I want to show you a little bit of what Mark is doing to actually help us to see that the story he's telling, the story he's telling about Jesus is the continuation of, and in fact, the climax of Israel's story. And he, he does that in this opening verse in, in a couple of ways. First, it's the, the introduction of that little phrase. He says, the beginning 
of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That word good news is the Greek word euangelion. In fact, I want to hear you say it. Well, it's the audience participation. Say that with me. Euangelion. Euangelion, it's the word from which we get our word evangelism. It's the word from which we get our word evangelical. It's the Greek word, literally means good news, sometimes translated gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Now, when you and I hear the word gospel, there are particular kind of resonances that come to our mind. Like, what do you think of when you hear the word gospel? Maybe you think of these stories, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke. Maybe you think of kind of the plan of salvation that you heard uh, maybe perhaps as a kid growing up, that sin separates us from God. Jesus died for our sins. If we trust in him, we have the, the promise of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life, the plan of salvation. Maybe one of the resonances for you when you hear the word gospel is a particular kind of music, right? Particular style of gospel singing. There are resonances that we have when we encounter this word, but our resonances wouldn't have been the same as those of the, its first readers. When, when they heard this idea that the story Mark is telling is the good news, there would have been resonances ringing in their hearts and minds. And one of the places that, that, that their imagination would have gone to is back to that Old Testament story, Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah writes to Israel in exile. He's one of the main ones who's giving them a sense of hope that one day God will return to his people and set things right. And Isaiah, the prophet, is also a poet. The way in which his prophecy, much of his prophecy, comes to the people is through the form of poetry. And you need to understand, before I actually show you this passage, you need to understand the way that Hebrew poetry works because it's different from English. English poetry is sort of built around rhyme and meter. Um, I, I don't know when it was, sometime maybe ninth grade, 10th grade, I remember having to memorize the prologue for Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. Anybody else in the room have to do this? You remember this? Yeah, you had to memorize and like, I don't, like this is apparently some form of English, but I have no idea what any of this means, but, but I still have it like tattooed on my frontal lobe, right? Wand that opera with the Shorasota. The drought of March has pierced it to the rota, and bothered every vein is which liqueur, of which virtue and gender it is the fleur. Should I keep going? <laughs> I have no, yeah, I, I can. One Zephyrus eke with his, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't know why that's stuck in there. Of all the things to be stuck in there, and all the things that don't manage to get stuck in there. Um, but, but I have no idea what the words mean, but you get the idea. You hear the, 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 the rhyme and the meter. That's the way that most or a lot of English poetry works. Hebrew poetry works very different. Hebrew poetry is structured around um, the idea of repetition. That the, the, the Hebrew poet will sort of stack up lines one after another that have a kind of... Um, uh, repetition, where, where, where one image that's introduced gets built upon, expanded. Um, it, it's, it, let me just show it to you. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. You won't necessarily be able to see it the way it's printed on the screen, but if you flip back there in your Bibles, uh, you'll see the way this plays out. Right? Isaiah 52, 7. Writing to the people in exile. The prophet says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? The Greek translation of this is euangelion, right? 
It's the, the, the good news, the gospel, right? So next line, who proclaim peace. And if you've been around my Bible teaching long enough, you know what that Hebrew word is, right? It's the word shalom. So the gospel is about shalom. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim shalom, who bring good tidings. It's our word euangelion there again, who proclaim salvation. Interesting. The gospel is about shalom, is about salvation. Now, in the Hebrew mind, that word salvation would have carried a kind of uh, a national triumph, a, 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 a sort of establishing the, the deliverance of Israel from their enemies. What they didn't fully understand is that the ultimate enemy from which they needed deliverance was sin and death. The gospel is about, is about shalom, is about salvation. And then last line, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. This word came to Isaiah for the sake of the people in exile saying, your God reigns, the kingdom of God, that the gospel in their imagination was about shalom, was about salvation, was about the reign of God. And so when they just read these opening words of Mark's story, they would say, here it is. This, the story that, that Mark is telling is the story of Israel coming to its climax. The other thing that you see there is that he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then read with me in verse, the middle of verse two there. Quoting, he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for, for who? For the Lord, right? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Mark says, I'm going to um, begin this story by connecting it to the old story by quoting Isaiah the prophet. So one place there's sort of hints at, the euangelion, gospel, hints at Isaiah the prophet. Now he says, I'm going to quote Isaiah the prophet. But interestingly enough, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then you know what he does? He quotes Malachi, interestingly enough. But what he does is he takes these words from Malachi 3.1, and he takes these words from Isaiah chapter 40, and he meshes them together, right? And both Malachi and Isaiah are pointing to the same reality, but from a different perspective. Both Malachi and Isaiah are pointing Israel in exile ahead to the day in which Yahweh would return to his people and set things right. But interestingly... Malachi and Isaiah speak at it from different angles. Isaiah writes to the people in exile to say, he's coming back. Yahweh is going to return to his people and he's going to set things right. He writes to give them hope. Malachi writes to give them warning. Saying, he's coming back. You better be ready. Don't miss it. And Mark brilliantly takes both of these. And brings them together here at the beginning of his story about Jesus. And says, there's one who's going to go before, who's going to prepare the way. Then prepare the way for who? For the Lord. Now, watch what he does next. Uh, verse, uh, what is that, seven? No, that's four. I'm, my eyes just aren't what they used to be. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. Hmm. And, th- and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a, a lot going on in that paragraph that we could sort of tease out, but the point I want you to get is that Mark introduces his story saying this is the good news. And then he quotes Malachi and Isaiah about one who could come to prepare the way for the Lord. And then he tells about John the Baptist, who's the one who's come to do just that. John has come to prepare the way for the Lord. So what we're expecting to see next in the story is the appearance of the Lord. You're catching on. But what do we see? Verse 9. At that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just when the story is expecting us to see, here it is, the return of God to his people come to set the world right. Who do we see? Jesus. This is Mark's way of saying, Jesus is Israel's God come to us in the flesh. This is the return of Yahweh to his people to set things right. He's come to do that in the person of Jesus. It's interesting because scholars believe that Mark's gospel was actually written to the church in Rome. That it's written, it's the account really, the the story of the apostle Peter who told it to Mark. Mark writes the story and sends it to the church in Rome. And part of um, why that's significant is that at the time that Mark sends this story of Jesus to the church in Rome, the church in Rome is experiencing terrible persecution. They have members that are literally dying for their faith in Jesus, that are being thrown in prison for their faith in Jesus. And Mark writes the Jesus story to be a source of strength, encouragement, and endurance for the church in Rome. The church in Rome that very likely is through their experience saying, God, how could you let this happen? And I wonder if any of us have ever asked that question. I know I encountered circumstances this, this past week where once again I was saying, God, how can you let this happen? And part of what's powerful about the way that Mark begins his story is to say, God has come in the flesh into our story. You see, because when we wrestle with that question, God, how could you let this happen? Most of the time, we don't get a clear, definitive answer. But what we do get from this story is the reality that God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, is not aloof. He does not stand at a distance and watch as the world he made spins madly on. He doesn't stand off at a distance as people struggle and suffer. But this God enters into their struggle, enters into their suffering. He is with them. What we find here in in the opening of Mark is essentially the equivalent of what we find stated even more explicitly in the Gospel of John. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is God in the flesh who's entered into our human story, entered into this world that is the dominion of sin and death. Entered into the vandalism of Shalom. 
Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, right? He's been baptized by John. Just as he's coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Here at the very beginning of the story of Jesus, before he's opened his mouth, before he said anything, we have this experience of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. Heaven opens and the voice of the Father comes and speaks these, these beautiful words of affirmation and affection over the Son. I have to think that those words of, of affirmation and affection from the Father to the Son fueled his life and ministry from that point forward. But then watch what happens next. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended to him. Mark's um, account is the shortest gospel that we have, 16 chapters. And Mark just compresses everything, just keeps the story moving. In fact, that word at once or immediately in some translations, Mark's favorite word. He says it again and again, keeps the story moving along. And so Mark, as soon as Jesus is baptized, then he's out in the wilderness, he's being tempted by Satan. And it's interesting, when you compare the stories, when they have the the same uh, scenes that are included, it's interesting to note what's the same and what's different. And what's different in Mark's account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? What's different here than the other stories? If you're familiar with those stories, you know they include a whole lot more detail. Mark keeps it short and sweet, right? The other stories include all the different ways in which Jesus is tempted. Mark just says he's in the wilderness being tempted. But when you notice what's not there that is there in the other stories, it's also interesting to know what is there that's not in the other stories. And what's really interesting about Mark's account, that what's here that's not elsewhere, is this little phrase, the wild beasts, right? He was with the wild beasts. Why, why would Mark include a line about Jesus being in the wilderness and being with the wild beasts? I mean, there's some sense in which, well, of course, right? He's out in the middle of nowhere. There's wild animals roaming around. Why, why, would, why would Mark include this little detail? Some scholars have suggested that this is part of what we see Mark doing in addressing the struggle and the suffering of the church in Rome. Because there are members of that church who were literally being thrown to the wild beasts. And that this is part of Mark, the brilliant storyteller that he is, saying Jesus knows your struggle. Jesus stands in solidarity with you in your struggle. He was with the wild beasts, but the angels came and took care of him. And then we get the first words of Jesus in The gospel of Mark. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. There's our word again, euangelion, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, it's interesting for us to say, okay, what is the good news according to Jesus? When Jesus preaches the gospel, what is it that he preaches? Well, look with me there. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What is the gospel according to Jesus? The gospel according to Jesus is it's time, it's now, it's happening. 
Shalom, salvation, the reign of God, it's come. Yahweh returning to his people to set things right. It's here, it's now, it's beginning. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's broken in. Then we said all the way back from Genesis 3, when sin enters the story, this world that is rightfully God's becomes the dominion of sin and death, the kingdom of hell. And what we have now here is that Jesus say, and now the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has broken into this kingdom of hell and is reclaiming it. He says, it's time, it's here, it's now, it's happening. I'm taking it back. I love this, my favorite of all my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. And you guys know I have lots of favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. But my favorite one of all of them is when C.S. Lewis defines Christianity. He says, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all into his great campaign of sabotage. Jesus has come and entered into the dominion of sin and death, saying, I'm taking it back. And he enlists you and me into that work of reclaiming what rightfully belongs to God. He invites us in. And and how does he invite us in? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. You want some shalom in the midst of a world that is characterized by the vandalism of shalom? Repent, believe the good news. You want salvation? which is deliverance from the ultimate enemy, sin and death, repent and believe the good news. Do you want to experience the reign of God in your life and in this world? Repent and believe the good news. Now repent, again, has resonances for some of us as though it means sort of we're supposed to feel really guilty uh, about all the bad things we've done. I grew up in a church that that spent a lot of time trying to make us feel really guilty. And I don't think that's the way that God actually entices us, right? By, By making us feel guilty, he actually does entice us by the truth and beauty of the gospel. That there's more to repentance than really feeling bad about the things that you've done. Repentance is actually turning from that which you've been following after, what you've been trusting in. Uh, Josephus, who's a writer around the same time as Mark, talked about going to a kind of a rebel leader in the Galilee and, and confronts him and says, repent and believe in me. What he's saying to him is turn away from the way you've been going, from what you've been trusting in, and, and, and believe in me. Align your allegiances with me. And all of us, I believe, are called upon to listen to that, to that call of Jesus, to repent to examine our hearts and our lives and say, what are the things that I've been following after? What are the things I've been trusting in? How have I been going toward the reign of sin and death rather than toward the reign of God? And to turn and to believe, to trust in what Christ has done for us. The way we experience shalom invading our lives The way we experience salvation from all that ails us, the way we experience the reign of God is by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. It's interesting to note that that this story arc that we've been talking about with the big story of the Bible, that Mark's story is the, the climax of the big story, but Mark also uses that story structure. 
Mark tells a, a great story that, that is, begins introducing Jesus as God in the flesh returned to set the world right. In the next scene, we see more characters introduced, the, the disciples that he calls and lists into following after him. Then we see the conflict. We see Jesus casting out demons and healing sickness and disease. The conflict of sin and death written in the lives of people that Jesus encounters. And so just like the big story, Mark's story follows that pattern. And so we get the climax of the story in Mark chapter 15. The climax of the climax of the story in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. Jesus, who has come to bring Shalom, come to bring salvation, come to bring the reign of God. He's the king over the kingdom. And the climax of the story reads this way. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns. And they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, hail king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and they put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him and the written notice of charge against him read, the king of the Jews. The climax of the climax of the story is the king of the Jews, the king of the world enthroned upon a cross. That the very one who came to to bring God's rescue from sin and death himself becomes a victim of sin and death so that he might triumph over it through his resurrection. And that we might have shalom, we might have salvation, we might have the reign of God because of the victory of Christ by merely believing in what he has done for us. The place that I think I came to understand the big story of God, perhaps like never before, was in in T. Wright's book, Simply Christian. And when he comes to the climax of the climax of the story, he says it this way. The pain and tears of all the years were met together on Calvary. The sorrow of heaven joined with the anguish of earth. The forgiving love of God stored up in God's future was poured out into the present. The voices that echo in a million human hearts crying for justice, longing for spirituality, eager for relationships, yearning for beauty, drew themselves together into a final scream of desolation. The death of Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, the bearer of Israel's destiny, the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of old is either the most stupid, senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or it is the fulcrum around which history turns. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise, and is calling us all to his great campaign of sabotage reclaiming for God what is rightfully his, bringing us the promise of shalom, of salvation, of the reign of God. The invitation to us is to repent and believe the good news. 
Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.